Welcome back to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy, executive producer and former host, and I'm back in front of the mic today to bring you a special bonus series on five writing essentials brought to you by Nick Childs, the industry writing coach for the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. Nick and I sat down over Zoom to bring you this bonus series. In this episode, the last of five parts, Nick and I discuss developing your voice in writing. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. Okay, well, welcome back for the final time, everyone. We're here to talk about part five of five of our writing series here with Nick Childs. And to wrap things up today, we're going to be talking about developing a voice despite writing for nonfiction. So to kick things off, you know, in J school, we're, we're taught to remove the reporter from the story as much as possible. So how do you have a voice whenever you're writing in journalism? So a voice becomes not only the way that you describe things. So I think that I became very adept over time with feature writing, with being able to put people at the scenes, to be able to paint very colorful scenes and and images um, with my words. But I also saw that my voice was, would come out in the decisions that I made. So, all writing is, is, is basically about decision-making. You control the words that you use. You control every sentence, every paragraph, what comes next. There are going to be many aspects of any particular story that you leave out. So the things that you put in then become how, in many ways, your voice is playing out in your work. So for instance, you know, if you are particularly interested in, like I did a story on um, a school principal in New Orleans a few years ago. I, I think it was for the Atlantic and, and the Heckinger Report, which is an education site. And it was kind of, I was brought there because New Orleans has become a system that is almost all charter schools. And there's um, a lot of the schools are run by these companies, these, these for-profit companies. A lot of the city before were, were um, African-American principals, teachers. A lot of them have been pushed out by these charter schools and these charter school companies. And so the, the, the teaching staff and, and the, the administrative staffs at these schools have become a lot more white. So I went to a, a longtime African-American principal to write about kind of how what what she has seen in the city change over time. It was an opportunity to write about women in power, which is something that fascinates me because I saw that this this was a woman who ran a school where there were many males that she supervised, there were boys obviously that she supervised. And the incredible skill that she needed to have to be strong to be authoritative, um, no nonsense, but to be kind of kind and empathetic at the same time. And those two things I felt like I would not be much less likely to see in a male principal. Um, It's possible, but 
the way that this woman went, up, went about it, kind of knowing how people would perceive her, knowing that, you know, her supervising the football coach was going to be complicated. Um, you know, this strong, stereotypical, like, you know, macho male kind of guy. But he loved her, um, even though I saw her ream him out, you know, like in, in, a, in a meeting with just the two of them. But she knew how to do it in a way that didn't make him into an enemy. And I thought it was kind of a fascinating portrait of, of a woman in power. And so those were a lot of the elements that I focused on when I wrote the profile. So that was kind of the decision making. Um, you know, I, I started the story out by describing her walking into the weight room where the football team lifted weights. And then I remembered my son played high school football. I remembered what the football, the football locker room smelled like. Like, you know, if you've never walked into a football locker room in high school, um, imagine those of you who might have brother, teenage brothers and what their rooms smell like at, at its worst and then multiply that by like 20. And that's like a football locker room. So the smell was like overwhelming. Um, it wasn't a good smell. And so I then wanted to be able to describe you know, this elegant, lovely woman walking into this place that smelled hard, but, you know, her not reacting to it and having these big strapping boys all come up and want to hug her as she's reaming them out about, you know, them missing an assignment or something. So it was just like so many different elements of her personality and her strength were contained in that lead. And so I wanted to kind of bring all of that in together. But that was my decision making. That was my voice coming out. Like I could have spent all of my time talking about um, the lack of resources that the school had. And so then I could have gone about, you know, cause this was not a school that had been taken over by a for-profit company. So it was one of the few schools that was left that was kind of a more traditional school. And she complained about how she didn't have the resources that some of these for-profit companies were funneling into these other schools. So I could have been, that could have been a major focus of my story, you know, kind of comparing what they did not have with, schools that had a lot more and and what the impact of that was i kind of mentioned it in passing but i was much more interested in this other other aspect of the story so those are decisions that you make so those are things that may interest you more than they would interest another writer who would come along so that becomes part of your voice becomes part of the the ways that you create these narratives in your writing and focus in on things that you think that the world needs to know more about or the, the world needs to think more about. In part four, we talked about writing about the other and, and how you're able to report on communities uh, to which you don't belong. And so I wanna kind of talk a little bit about implicit bias in our voice. How, you know, everyone is biased to some degree and how do we go about checking that while writing? Well, one of the things that I, I, I often do is, you know, if I have a particular political point of view that may in some way be relevant to the story I'm reporting on, I ask myself if that sentence, that paragraph, if that story would be written differently if I had the opposite political view. That allows me, by constantly questioning myself in that way, it allows me to kind of investigate whether I'm allowing my own prejudices or my own beliefs to color the, 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 or skew the way that I'm describing something. 
And, and I think that that's important, um, especially in this partisan era that we live in, in this era where now things that people don't ag agree with are being labeled as fake news on a regular basis. We all have bias in some way. The more that we're aware of it, the more that we can control it. But, you know, I think that we should constantly be in investigating the ways that we describe things and the reasons that we describe things. I, I remember reading a story. It was a profile of the tennis star, Naomi Osaka. Very high up in the story, the writer used an adjective to describe her father that was a, a negative adjective. I can't remember. It was, I think it was taciturn or something that was kind of a synonym for that. So in other words, they were making the guy out to be kind of an asshole, you know, that he was somewhat obnoxious. But nowhere else in the story did the writer ever go back to describe why they described the father in that way. And it jumped out at me because I assumed when I got that description high up in the story that I was going to then get some justification for it somewhere in the story and it never came. And I realized what probably happened, and this happens often as a reporter, where somebody gives you a hard time during the course of the reporting. For whatever reason, they may be having a bad day or they don't like you or you rub them the wrong way or they don't like the way that you're asking questions. They then kind of give you this, this impression that they don't like you and so as a result, you don't like them. And then that might creep its way into your reporting. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that a journalist can make because then that makes you part of the story. So the dad, oh, Naomi's dad, who Naomi loves her dad, clearly they have a great relationship. For whatever reason, the dad probably did not like the reporter, maybe whatever, who knows what, a million different reasons why. And so was not cooperative with the story and the reporter's questions. And so as a result, the reporter found a way to kind of get back at him, maybe even unconsciously, by describing him in a negative way. But that could have been, the reporter could be a jerk. Um, the reporter could be, and I've certainly met many jerks in the newsroom. So it was not beyond my comprehension to, to, or um, belief to, to think that the dad may be the nice guy and the reporter not be the nice guy. So there are many different ways that people respond to you. So make sure in your reporting that you are not allowing how you interact with that person to in some way become part of the story. So however it is that they are responding to your questions, you may not be asking it in a way that they like in particular. That doesn't mean that the way that they answer the question should be part of the story unless you can back it up with a lot of detail about, you know, what it is that you asked and how they responded to it. So just be aware of, of your ability to impact a lot of different aspects of how the reader is responding to these people and to make sure that if you are describing people in a particular way or an issue in a particular way, that you have ample evidence in your story to back it up so that the reader understands how you got to that and that it's not just some impression that is unrelated to the issue that, it, that you're writing about 
and you throw it out there and then the reader walks away with the negative impression of this person that has nothing to do with the issue or what, whatever the story was supposed to be about. I want to get your take on writing in the first person. Is there ever a time and place where that is appropriate? And why does it feel like we're sort of breaking some sort of rule by uh, initiating that? Well, I think that it, it's something that you have to think a really long time about before you do it, because it does, it's smashing through these walls that for a very good reason we have created in, in journalism. We don't want the, the reader, when they're reading a story, to be thinking about the writer. We want the reader to be thinking about the, the focus of the story, the person that the story is about, the issue that the story is about. We don't want the writer to become a part of the story. Just like when you're watching a movie, if the director does something that makes them apparent to you, like Spike Lee has this thing in many of his movies where he, he in a, a dramatic, intense scene, he, he, he comes in tight on the person but then he walks along with them like kind of on a dolly. So you can see that it's one of those movable dollies that's moving with them. And it's very obvious because it's not the way as a viewer, we're used to seeing somebody. It's not the way that if they were, if I were seeing them in real life, like I wouldn't be seeing somebody walking backwards like while they're looking me in the face. So it, it makes, makes you realize that you're watching a movie and it makes you think about Spike shooting the scene as a, so this is a criticism of Spike, sorry Spike, but it, it takes you out of the story for a moment and kind of makes it apparent that, you know, this, it's almost like, you know, when in a story, if like an actor breaks the, the, the wall and like looks at the camera and you're like, wait, what the hell was that? You know, that's not supposed to happen because you're supposed to be an observer looking upon this life that has, that is, you know, only incidentally something somebody is filming. So it totally takes you out of the story. And so in the same way, that's what first person does. Um, if it's about somebody else, if you make yourself part of it, then it takes the reader out of like com being completely absorbed in a story. Now it's different, of course, if it's some kind of editorial and the story then becomes about you. So I've seen stories, you know, like during COVID, for instance, maybe a reporter is writing about their experience with COVID or a family member having COVID. So then their own personal confrontation with that particular thing then becomes part of the information they're, they're trying to impart to the reader. So then it becomes relevant. But I think for the most part in most journalism stories, there is always a way to get around the writer being a part of the story. I mean, I've even seen, you know, a reporter, they use the, that, that, expression a reporter the person you know struck out at it at or or took a swipe at a reporter you know so you're not even saying that it was you that they swung at you but letting you know perhaps that that the that particular encounter got like physical or violent um and that may be relevant in some way but without saying they swung at me swung at a reporter so I, you know you might see that 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 construction sometimes but the the point of that is that you know even that writer became part of the story but they wanted to avoid using that word i because they knew that that would be jarring to the reader if they suddenly saw that the person was part of the story and so i think that that's a mistake that young journalists often make 
um, and that they put themselves in the story unnecessarily. There's always a way to write around including yourself in the story um, because that needs, there needs to be a very strong reason for it. As we wrap up our series here of five various parts, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to offer to the students that are listening on best practices for writing going forward? To do it as much as possible. We live in a time now where you don't even have to be working for a particular publication to get your writing out there. So, you know, we have not only social media, I mean, back in the old days you had websites, um, but now, you know, there's podcasts, there's different ways for you to kind of get your, your, yourself out into the world. And so I, I want people to, to find ways to engage with a public, to create a public and, and to write and, you know, write about different things that are going on in your world. If it's not going to be public for public consumption, then just for your own consumption. It's this tool, this muscle that needs to be exercised and worked as much as possible to develop to its fullest. So the more that you can do it, the stronger and you know, the, the more powerful it will be. Great, well, thank you, Nick. It has been a pleasure. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this special bonus series of The Lead Podcast. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy. This was the last of five parts, so be sure to tune in to the earlier parts of our Writing Essentials series. This podcast was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. To keep up with The Lead, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Until next time.